0: you are listening to the visualizing war podcast in each episode we talk about representations of war in art text film and music with new guests each time we look at how people have described or imagined war in different periods and places and we discuss the impact which war stories have on us as individuals and societies
1: hello my name is nicolas Vieta, and my
0: name is alice koenig
1: and we co-direct the Visualizing War Project at the University of St. Andrews. Today we have Hune Downey with us, an actor, writer, and director. And Hune is also co-founder and one of the artistic directors of Company of Wolves, a laboratory theater company whose mission is to make compelling drama, and I'm quoting now, that speaks directly to the times in which we live. So that is extremely interesting to us, obviously. Um, in terms of the feedback loop between narrative and life. We're particularly keen to talk to him about his dramatization of the story of Achilles, uh, how he updated that iconic ancient military hero for the modern stage, and we'll also be asking him more generally about representations of war on stage and screen. So, Hün, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I
2: was going to say nice to e meet you, but now every meet is e, so maybe it's just meet. Just <laughs> oh, <it laughs> nice meet,
1: meet, yes. <laughs> Likewise, could we, uh, you know, get the conversation started by asking you a bit about uh, your own background, your work, and and your company?
2: I, as you said, I perform, I write, I direct, I also teach, and. My primary thing that I do is I, is I run Company of Wolves with my wife, Anna Porkanski. We're a laboratory theatre company of sorts, which for people who don't know, which probably is almost everyone, it's a form of experimental Polish theatre where you make work by a deep training process. One thing that has been said to me about it is the idea is that the people should be able to change in the process. The process should have the depth and the amount of time. That people can transform. So it's not like you're playing characters and you're you're just using your skills. You should change in the process of making the work.
1: And it, the in fact, you're also you're also running workshops. Is that right?
2: Yes, we normally teach quite a lot of workshops that are open to the public to learn aspects of what we do, particularly around around movement and around voice and around a kind of attitude of play towards how you use your body and your voice and how you play with each other. I've avoided using the word play for many years because often it gives you the idea that it's not very serious because it should be fun and serious at the same time. It's more like the way that children play where it's deadly serious.
1: For us, as, as people who work on literature and also sociological approaches to literature, that that's a familiar idea: the idea of play, of life as a form of play and performance. In fact, there's a whole theory out there that looks at it that way, and it's very helpful to understand how we act as as human beings, how we fit into different contexts, you know, how we make different contexts work, you know, for us with us as. As personalities, so just as a follow-up question, Yun. So that is that right? The um, you said it's open to the general public, so it's not just actors or aspiring actors um, that attend those workshops. It's for everybody, and it kind of feeds into this idea of uh, interacting directly with with the times in which we live. And and you absolutely, know. I
2: mean, our how well exactly we've done that this up to this point is is a is an open question. We do get we do get people who are not actors. We do get people who are not artists. Usually they're a smaller proportion than, than we'd like at the moment. We don't do actor training. Like I teach at drama schools and I don't consider what I do actor training. I would consider what I do is it's about training people to be more complete people. It's about a kind of a holistic process. And um, Steve Paxton, who invented contact improvisation, sometimes says that he became a dancer to complete his movement education. Because humans, are, we're not fully formed at birth. We can keep learning for our whole lives, which is very unusual for an animal. I think that's what it's about, learning to have access to more of your capacity as a human being. And then if you want to use that on the stage, great. Or if you want to use it to do anything else, also great.
0: That's really interesting, this idea that drama is a way of exploring and actually maybe even developing your sense of yourself, your personality, character, it it resonates actually with what one of our other podcast guests have said a little bit about soldiering, which is that soldiering is about putting on a role, playing a role, putting on a uniform, becoming a different version or a sort of an extended version of yourself. Ewan I wonder if we could dive into one of the projects which you've done recently which was a one-man performance by you that reimagines the story of Achilles the famous Greek warrior um, from Homer's ancient epic poem the Iliad. Can you tell us a little bit more first of all about what drew you to Achilles as a character and then what you did with Achilles in your performance in your play?
2: There's sort of two versions of what drew me to Achilles. One is What I could say in hindsight about how I ended up with it, which is that it's a story that I've been exposed to at a very young age. I think I probably read a version of it when I was maybe seven or eight and gone back to those stories. Ever since that age, I've been obsessed with mythology, really. And one of my abiding things that I always found difficult about theatre as a form, despite loving it, was that it's not that obvious in theatre how you would perform mythic material, particularly the way that modern theatre is often done, is related to realism in some way, like people having recognisable lives and stuff. I wanted to see gods and monsters and the things that you see in myth on the stage, and it's quite hard to know how to do that, or at least it it was given the the sorts of theatre that I saw as a young person. So that's one answer, is that... I've been obsessed with mythology for a long time and I've been looking for a way to use it in performance for a long time. In the actual making of that show, the answer is Achilles came quite late and I had the idea of making a solo show because I'd never worked alone. I went into a room and I started to work and I made quite a lot of movement material and I found some songs that I knew that I wanted to work with, which are Greek songs from the um, border of Greece and Albania quite old. And then it was a a long time into the process. I was working with a different story where I suddenly realized this is the story of Achilles. I was in fact working with a story from T.H. White about a goshawk. And it's about the relationship with a goshawk and a man. And and, and I realized that I was much more interested in the hawk than the man. And the hawk's sort of unbridled rage and a complete inability to communicate with the man. And I started thinking I was gonna have to write the hawk's voice. It wasn't really clear how I would do that. And, and then suddenly it became blindingly obvious that the character that I was looking at was Achilles. Because the thing that T.H. White says about the, the hawk is it just bursts into this uncontrollable rage where it will hurt itself and other people. And a bait, they call it, when, when a bird sort of will wreck everything, including itself and its own feathers. and its own... So and I, then when it became blindingly obvious that I was going to work with Achilles,
0: so the story of Achilles sat with you for a while and then, as you say, it was something that sort of emerged as you were working with what you felt like a different story, which is really interesting to us because we're quite interested in archetypes mm. and in the way in which archetypes of militarism, heroism, war itself keep resonating through history and recurring. Could you just tell us a tiny bit more about the shape of the play? Do you tell the life of Achilles in it or do you focus on specific aspects?
2: The shape of the play is an adaptation of some bits from the Iliad. I mean, in a way, it does the whole arc of the Iliad in 45 minutes. Really, what I was interested in is the moment where I would say that Achilles commits a crime against himself, really, and also against Patroclus by letting Patroclus go to fight in his stead because he's in a sulk. I'm sure he wouldn't characterize it as a sulk, but it's a sulk. And his best friend dies because he didn't do what he should have done, really. He knows that he's done something wrong. And from that point where his reaction to discovering that his best friend has been killed because of what he did, his reaction then is to go back to the war and kill everybody, basically. Until eventually he gets to Hector, who's the person who killed Patroclus. And then he takes revenge on Hector. He kills Hector. And then afterwards, he disrespects his body and drags him behind his chariot again and again and again and again. And that's the arc that I take in. There is another bit of the story in in the Iliad where Hector's father comes and asks for the body back. And Achilles does give it back to him. And I don't do that in um in my version partly because i'm interested in people being wrong and i kind of think it is beautiful the end where where he's where he gives the body back but i didn't really want to let him off the hook like that
0: that's really interesting that you want to focus in you zone in on achilles crimes effectively his rage as you say this the 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 connection with achilles came out of a sense that you were you were dramatizing rage so you've zoned in on that and I think that that sense that you don't want to give Achilles any sense of redemption is quite revealing about how you respond to him, how you feel about him as a character. As you say the wider Iliad contextualizes him more, explains his sulk, gives him that sense of closure at the end. And, and in your production you want you want to kind of keep with the raw. Uh, the the raw rage and, uh, in a sense, decontextualize it. And just, is that right? Just look at Achilles' rage in its rawness.
2: Yeah, I mean, there is some context in the sense that I ground it in the... This was actually a problem with the play in the beginning because one of the things that I did was I really just did the bits I was interested in initially. And the bits which I was really interested in are the really um, being in a state of horrible grief and taking revenge. Those were the things that I felt were key. But the problem with that is that if you don't give people any context, then you come and see a show where somebody is having a, a very intense and terrible time on the stage and you go, well, okay. So I did create context in the sense of the narrative arc, but I didn't create very much context in terms of the character, no. Partly because I don't want I didn't want to get into realism really sometimes it can give us a way to insulate ourselves and say oh well i'm not that that sort of person and i didn't have those kinds of experiences so i couldn't possibly have anything in common with that thing that he's doing but actually i think that that impulse to lash out is in all of us i mean i think we don't most of us take it to the extreme that he does and that like that impulse to just go beyond what is actually human really is what characterizes Achilles, really. It's what he represents, of what he is. One of my kind of initial things with him is that as a child, when, when I read the stories, he, they always talked about him as a hero. And in the children's versions, he's, he is represented in a way that you would probably recognize as being heroic. But when I read the Iliad, finally, when I was probably in my early 20s, I remember being absolutely floored by how awful he is it's not just that he's a great warrior the greatest warrior it's that he's completely unfair it's like he it it, it's like you know setting achilles on an army is a bit like a, a drone strike there's just nobody else has a chance at all they never had a chance and yet we're calling this person a hero and it's not really what we understand in modern terms as being a hero Can you be a hero when you're the person who drops a nuclear bomb? Is that a heroic action? I I don't think it is.
0: That's really getting us into some interesting territory here. So this idea that in a sense, myth, which you don't want to make really realistic, can actually reveal some incredible truths about the frameworks through which we understand war, the stories that we use somehow to massage the truth about war almost. I think it's not an uncommon experience that you've had where your sort of first encounters with ideas of heroes are quite anodyne, quite benign somehow. It's really interesting to hear you using this heroic character, this archetype from history to profoundly question that. And I, I love this analogy that you've got of Achilles as a drone strike, is that unfair? It's helping us visualize this hero in quotes in a completely new light.
2: I think actually when I was doing my adaptation I always had in the back of my mind Ted Hughes's tales from Ovid and he uses those sorts of like he updates some of the metaphors in a way so he, at some point he talks about um Zeus and he talks about the nuclear blast of his impact and that sort of thing and I think you know it can be overused but that's that's what we're talking about I think. We we're in a time which is very strange with war in that we're getting further and further apart that you get when humans started out, we were using flint knives and stuff. You had to get pretty close to somebody to kill them. And you had to really feel quite strongly about it to, to want to do it. And it's just got further and further apart. Because even if you're using a plane, but you're in the same country, yeah, it's very unlikely you can be got at. And I think a drone strike on a computer screen, that's a whole different scenario now.
1: I think one of the things I also found extremely interesting, way in which you're using the Iliad now to question some of these ideas, but originally there was a version of the Iliad out there that put a certain idea of warfare and terrorism into your head, in the first place. So it's it's also very interesting to see how ancient texts are being used, have been used all the time to create a certain idea of warfare. You you often find this when. Complex works are abbreviated for children, for example, and that often has. I think people often don't realize what kind of profound impact that has and how much is lost. And I'm thinking also of, of Moby Dick, for example, which in, I think most people in Germany would tell you is a children's story because you, you get it in this kind of, you know, they concentrate on the whale hunt and, you know, the the adventure aspect. But of course, you know, everybody who's read this book knows it's about a lot more than that. So it's really quite interesting how Mm. dealing with those ancient stories in the first place creates an idea of heroism. And now we're using the same story to actually, you know, um, look at this critically.
2: For me, that's maybe why I've always been interested in mythology. Maybe we don't have mythology that's properly adapted to the modern world, but we still have Stone Age brains. So maybe it is better than, you know, maybe it's still quite good. But I think that mythology It should disturb you, like shake you up and make you question how some quite important things fit together and and wonder about who you are and wonder about what sort of person you want to be. The thing I like about myth, I think if, if it's worked with in the right way, they are not black and white. And I think anything that pushes us into not giving binary answers is really uncomfortable, but actually really useful.
0: Your show Achilles is in part about heroism, exploring models of heroism, exploring boundaries of behaviour. Were you also trying to communicate things about war itself or is it almost incidental to what you were trying to do in that show?
2: What I was most interested in was getting at the core of his experience. I wanted to try and as much as possible put myself and the audience inside the experience of, inside his experience, but also actually inside the the experience of the people that he encounters. A lot of the time in that show, my perspective as a storyteller, a lot of it was words, but there was also songs and movement in it that had a function a bit like choruses in ancient Greek theater, because I've not been in a war and I've not been in many fights either. Uh, I did a workshop with a guy called um, Rory Miller who's a really interesting person he, he wrote a book Meditations on Violence is his book and Rory Miller is a is American person who used to work in a high security prison and a martial artist so his job was to be in a potentially lethal hand-to-hand fight almost every day for 15 years and his book he writes about what that's like and the perspectives that gives you on things and I also did a workshop with him because I wanted to, yeah, it turned out he was doing a workshop in St. Andrews actually while I was rehearsing. And I thought, well, I've obviously got to go and do that. But so I, I did do research, but I did I wasn't thinking about portraying war really. It was also because it's quite individualistic. Took the show to Aberdeenshire and a guy came up to me after the show, this huge American person, and he said to me that he had been in Afghanistan and in Iraq in the American army. And he said, I just wanted you to just know that this is exactly what it felt like, <laughs> um, which was uh, sort of an amazing to hear. And I'm sure there are other aspects to war that I did, didn't capture, but it was good to know that at least for that person, it had that kind of credibility. One of the things that I'm always interested in capturing is what's the impulse behind it. And because it's based in a kind of grief turning into rage and a kind of traumatic response, that might be what gives it credibility.
1: So it's probably fair to say this is a piece about war, but it's also about all the implications that war has. Acting in war, things that make people go to war, but also questions about grief, rage, violence. More generally, here's the link again, I guess, with sort of one of the core ideas of of your company, which is to connect with what's happening around us now, and mm. uh, you know how, how these how these stories are a great medium to think about contemporary concerns, contemporary questions.
2: I was thinking earlier on, what is it that holds together all the pieces that I make? I suddenly realized, I don't know if I've really thought about it in this way before, but what I'm interested in is empathy or the ability to feel other people as real, which is like maybe another way to put the same thing. If we can understand that, maybe we'll not be so awful to each other. If you're interested in health, you become interested in disease. So I'm interested in what it is that makes that fail. And what are the situations in which that ability to recognize people as, as actually people breaks down?
0: I love the analogy that you've just made there, that the the dramatist and the actor is in some sense, actually a doctor or someone who's into diagnosis. Some of the things that, so you're interested in empathy, but I think you're also interested in subconscious as well as behavior. And some of the things that you're saying really connect with what one of our other podcast guests in the past has talked about. Mike Martin, who's written a book called Why We Fight. And he talks a lot about the fact we frame all sorts of reasons for why we fight, we come up with political reasons, we come up with religious narratives and explanations, but ultimately there are an awful lot of subconscious drives. And as you say, if you can unlock that understanding of behaviour, individual, very personal, passionate behaviour, and look at it, put it under the microscope, as I think your plays do, then, then we might get to a position where we understand each other better and where empathy actually then flows. So it's really interesting to hear the way you're talking to think about drama as some kind of intervention, some kind of diagnostic, but potentially almost curative intervention. Ewan, you you mentioned earlier there's a mix in your play of words, movement, song, the Greek chorus and so on. I think I want to take this opportunity just to to tell listeners that they can watch clips on your website, one particularly impressive clip on the companyofwolves.org website. Could you just tell us a little bit about the balance between words, song? Did you take words from Homer's Iliad, for example? Are they all your own words? Where's some of the inspiration from?
2: The music mostly comes from Northern Greece and is mostly music that I collected when I was, so I I trained and worked with a Polish theatre company, Song of the Goat, uh, between 2003 and 2012, something around that. And we went to Northern Greece as part of my training and we, we uh, collect music, sometimes archive recordings, sometimes from people, and also experienced dances and went to Epidaveros and things like that. That company was very interested in tragedy and that was part of our training. And so those songs have been with me a long time. And one of them, one of the people I studied with him, he wasn't in the company, a year or so after we'd trained together, He had been working on one of those songs and he died. He was quite young and buried in a mudslide in Norway. Shortly before that, we had been working together. This is one of the other things, sort of serendipitous things where you go, oh, this is really obvious. We had been working together on material from the Iliad. I had been working with material from Achilles and he'd been working with material from Hector. And when he died, I made a promise that I would put the song that he was working on in a show. So I, I knew the music very early. I knew that I wanted to put that music in the show. And the fact that it was about Achilles and Hector, for some reason, it took me a long time to realise. One of the pieces is a male lament from Epiros. One of them is a folk song from Epiros. And one of them is actually part of the Byzantic liturgy from, from the Easter service. It's about Mary, so it's about mercy. I think from the beginning, I had a sense of what the feeling tone of the performance was going to be. And that's where that movement came from. Some of it came from imaginative things and some of it came from memories of conflict that I'd had or memories of violence that I'd had, but played with, as we said earlier. I think that's one of the things that is important to do, particularly working with personal material, is that if you don't find a way to, to, to have enough space to be able to play with the thing, then there's no space for anybody else to experience it. You're just having an intense reenactment of some past moment. But if you can find a way that you can hold it a little bit more lightly, then it's possible for people to go with you. The words I wrote, it's probably likely that there are some aspects of it that were quite close to Robert Fagel's translation, because that's the one that I know best. And I've read that a lot of times. But after, after a while, I had to stop reading it and read other translations, because I realized that I was just sort of recreating his way of doing it and it wasn't that wasn't right at all and there are some aspects that really are quite like a translation of bits of the Iliad and there are other things which are absolutely not in the Iliad at all funnily enough nobody has noticed this who's seen the show which is quite good one of the things that I do in the show Homer has these extended um, similes where he compares things to things so he talks about Achilles being like a dolphin pushing fish into a harbour so that the bodies of the fish are so close together, there's no gap between the silver bodies and then the dolphin can eat as much as it wants. And that's Achilles' relationship to the soldiers. There are some of those metaphors that I use, some of those similes that I use that are, that are Homeric and others which are not. And the landscape of the play kind of shifts. So it's much more like Scotland in some ways.
1: The play itself has inbuilt, so to speak, the, the link between modern times and ancient times, uh, ancient material modern material. It's, it all comes together to form a new whole that brings out some interesting aspects about the ancient story, these ideas that make us think about, you know, Achilles as a powerful super weapon and what implications it has for our ideas of heroism, but also kind of embodies all these ideas that you wanted to bring out about rage and, and losing control and, and conflict and violence.
2: For me, the story starts with Achilles doing something wrong. And I think he knows it's something wrong. I think that's probably why his reaction is so awful is, is it's that sense of I've done something terrible. And at that moment, you have the choice. We all have the choice of backing down or not. And his choice is not to back down. At no point does he say, I just feel really terrible because I should have just swallowed my pride and fought. And now my best friend is dead. And probably it never occurs to him. I don't know. But he sort of doubles down on it. I think that's really interesting. Because we see that in politicians all the time at the moment. Like they've been caught in something. And instead of saying, sorry, they just do more of it.
1: I guess that's kind of the tragedy inherent in Achilles' story that his attempt to hurt his own people as much as possible ends up with him being hurt more than anybody else because Patroclus dies in the process. And I think it's good that you're focusing on this moment because that's a moment where he, he's setting Patroclus up to die almost by giving him his armor and putting yeah. him into shoes that he just, he can't fill those shoes, right?
2: The other thing which I think is really interesting to me is the emptiness of revenge. Because in the end, you know, he kills Hector and he just keeps dragging the body around and around every day behind his horses because the fact is is that it hasn't made him feel any better in a a way he couldn't possibly kill Hector enough to feel any better because actually the thing he needs to deal with is what he's done he needs to deal with himself
0: yeah so there are many ways in which that some of the things that you're exploring Achilles as a drone strike the massive impact that one person can have might resonate and might um, help you us everyone think through some of the the experiences that are closer to home. I think you're getting to something really interesting about storytelling here. And it's something that, again, a different podcast guest has brought up a little bit. We we interviewed Harry Parker recently, who wrote a novel called Anatomy of a Soldier. Now, it's a fictional experience, but it's very, very closely connected to his own experiences of serving in Afghanistan and, and being blown up by an IED. But he really wanted to go to that fictional space. And I think that that's for a very similar reason that you're interested in fiction. You said something like you want to play with personal material, but in a way that that creates a bit of space and distance and, you know, using that the element of storytelling to give other people the space to play with it too. I think that's yeah. getting something really interesting there.
2: There is a story behind the story, which, which is a, a personal one. So the guy who had the, the song who died, who I promised to put this song in his, in a show, in a sense, this play for me commemorates him and also a couple of other men that I've known, that died quite young. And all of them had a kind of quality. To me, they represent something in in that they were kind of lost and kind of angry and kind of looking for something, looking for who they were, I think, and couldn't find it. And all three of them died around about the age of 27. My wife, Anna, who I run the company with, when I was making the piece, she knows about these stories. She asked me, do you want to maybe put some of this material in the play? And I tried, and it never, it just never felt right at all. Um, And it makes me think about, recently I heard this quote, I can't remember the name of the writer who said this, it was Robert Rodriguez perhaps, said, some things are so personal that we can only tell strangers. I think it's not quite the same thought. I feel sometimes talking about personal experience on stage in a way that is so personal, for me, inserts a kind of falseness into the into the way into the story in just the fact of telling that story on stage makes it become a fiction already and then the fact that i'm pretending it's not a fiction makes me does something so that it it doesn't work for me whereas using that experience to power a piece of fiction feels like it's telling the truth much more
1: and maybe that's really where the power of all kinds of stories resides, no matter what medium we present them is. At some point, it's up to the reader to unpick these things. Just, you know, like we've been talking about the story you created, but clearly you are a reader of your own story once you talk about it. And that's the whole point. At some point, the reader, the audience takes over and makes these connections and makes these links that help explore the text and that trigger this kind of thought process, emotional process, intellectual process that comes out of engagement.
2: For me, that's the really important point about a piece of work that I'm making. One of my desires for anything that I would make is that it's a practice for yourself, for the performer, that the questions in it are live. They've not been settled. Each time I perform it, I confront those things anew and the answers that I give inside it are, are slightly different. You know, maybe there's no answer, but the attempts at answering are a bit different. Hopefully that can provoke a similar kind of live search in the audience. Howard Barker says somewhere that theatre shouldn't be a reassuring experience, but it should be a really destabilising experience. He says a piece of theatre should be like the grain of sand in the oyster's gut that over time can be turned into a pearl.
1: So uh, we've been talking about a story that you know in various different media that you know we know in various different media as a, as a children's book, as an oral epic, originally uh, an epic that was written down at some point, and now you're transposing it to the stage. So wh- where do you see the, the particular advantages of staging something, this kind of very strong sort of embodied presentation that you have on the stage, as opposed to the other possible forms in which the same story could be told?
2: There are different ways of staging a thing as well. So the advantages might be different. What our company of wolves, my wife and I, uh, the, the way that we tend to work, interest is about intensity of experience, really. That you almost don't breathe from the start to the finish of the play and you come out the end and then suddenly you're hit by the whole thing. And then you have all these kind of conflicting energies inside you that it takes your body, mind a while to sort of work out where does this all go? It's almost like a transfusion, I guess. And that kind of a transfusion, it's not necessarily that the theatre is best at it, but it's probably one of the only places you could do it because you're in the same room as each other. And I think that's what's unique. You could tell the same story on TV or in a book, but you can always stop the TV and go away or put the book down. And even a film is different because a performer can listen to the audience and start to sense when they're pulling away because something's too much. And then you sort of slightly change the way that you do the next thing so that the people then are drawn back in. So you're all the time saying, it's okay, come with me. We're going to go some places. This is going to be quite a journey, but you're going to be safe. It's okay, come with me. And that is something which can only really be done in the same room as other people.
0: That's making me think actually back to the sort of the traditional oral storytelling format of the Iliad, which obviously got written down at some point in one particular order and one particular form. I'm really now enjoying playing with the idea that at times the performers would have been responding perhaps to audience and adjusting maybe the way in which they were telling that great war story, depending on audience reactions. I suppose that that brings me on to a sort of a follow up question and you know you have managed to perform this covid pandemic didn't bodge achilles you've done various performances before the the pandemic hit you've mentioned how one particular audience member responded could you tell us a bit more about how other people have responded i think you've done some q and a after the show for example thinking about issues of authenticity you know just what people have taken the play about Achilles or about war or about the human condition?
2: It's been one of the more satisfying performance experiences from that point of view in, in my life in that one of the things that's really unsatisfying a lot of the time when you do post-show discussions is that they ask a lot of things about the sort of details of the show. Oh, why did you do that? Or what was that for? Or those sorts of things. So questions about making theatre, they are perfectly entitled to ask those, but because we've just made a play, it's not that interesting to us. In the case of Achilles, though, people didn't ask those sorts of questions at all. I mean, the the first Q&As that we did were at the Citizen's Theatre. It was apparent to me that something interesting was happening because people wanted to sit and talk afterwards. A lot of them did. And then they would say things like, why do we still kill each other? Why do we still make war? Why can't we get over this? That sort of thing. I mean, for me anyway, as a theatre maker, that's exactly what I would hope to happen, is that people would ask those sorts of big questions, which probably don't really have answers, but I think it's really important to, to ask them.
0: You're really exploring war from the inside out, from the individual in this incredibly visceral way. Uh, so that people actually do come to the end of your show and ask those big questions. Why do we still kill each other? Why are we still at war? And you say you want it to be horrifying. So I suppose, you know, the next question is maybe going to be annoying because it's trying to put a kind of black and white spin on things. Would you say that this play is anti-war?
2: I don't know that I have sole ownership as to what the play is about. I have some idea as to what it's about, but I'm not sure that I have a better idea as to what it's about than other people who've seen it. For me, I'm not thinking about anti-war when doing it. Like a friend of mine wrote to me and said, it's the most violent anti-war poem I've ever seen. And I think in, in the sense that it's in some way, a kind of deconstruction of a hero. Is this a hero? Because I'm not, I'm not totally convinced that he's not a hero either. I think maybe a hero is something much, much more disturbing than we think it is, maybe, as well. I'm absolutely up for people saying it's an anti-war play. I know that I wasn't thinking about that. But, but also, again, you know, I grew up marching for CND and my parents were in, you know, anti-war, anti-nuclear movement. And it's amazing how we've forgotten this almost. Like, I mean, I've forgotten it, that when I was eight or nine, we all thought that there would be a, a nuclear war and we'd all be wiped out tomorrow and the nukes haven't disappeared they're still there and actually a lot more people have them but we've sort of forgotten about that but that seemed very real at the time so I think that's in there too I expect is that you could say it's anti-war because in my bones I am anti-war which is not to say that I don't have sympathy for people who are involved in it and uh, one of the things which I'm really interested in is how could I end up in that situation And one of my earlier shows was about another light show was about torture and was really about that was about what would be the journey? Because I don't believe that. Well, maybe I would resist. But how could I end up being a torturer?
1: Uh, you, You spoke a little bit about a previous show. Can I ask about future shows? What's in store for us? What's next? Will you stay with war? Will you keep asking questions about war and violence and conflict? What do you have planned?
2: A Company of Wolves have a few different things coming up. My wife, Anna, is making a solo piece based on Frankenstein, which is about monsters, really. And maybe we are the monsters, or maybe we make the monsters. She's working on that. I've started working on another solo show. It's quite early yet based on the back eye. It's not getting into war, but what I think is at the root of that is about the impulse to other people to, to separate ourselves. So there's the impulse to other people and be the in people, but there's also the impulse to sort of take being an outsider. So I guess it's about us and them in some ways. The other piece, which uh, we've been working on for a long time and got delayed by a year because of the pandemic is a version of Shakespeare's Julius Caesar. And that'll be a bigger show with multi-actors. And I I won't be performing in it now, actually, Um, I don't think. But I'm co-directing that with Brian Ferguson, who's a good friend of mine. That should be happening next spring, you know, fingers crossed, touring next spring. And that will have, because the final act of Julius Caesar is a war act. So that will be uh, coming back to war. And one of the things which we're really interested in, actually after having had a conversation with Alice, which was really helpful, is how in this sort of, Shakespearean heroic mold the narrative of the war is centered on the central protagonist characters and what happens to them but actually we are really interested in what happens beyond that because certain things might happen to them and they might have a bad time and so on but actually what happens to the whole world the whole world is turned upside down in that play because of their actions and so the consequences go far beyond what happens to those people to Brutus and to Cassius and um, Antony and that's interesting because at some point in the play Mark Antony summons Ate the goddess of chaos I believe and when you do that you don't get to put that person back in the box and everything gets destroyed.
0: It'll be very interesting to see what you do with that ending as you say like many a play and like many a story Shakespeare's narrative focuses on the principal players, and perhaps in part because that's the easier side to show on stage. So, it, you know, there are challenges, presumably, to exploring on stage the sort of the wider chaos that emerges from what effectively becomes a civil war with Rome and and its citizens sort of imploding. Almost, It'd be interesting to see see what you do with that. Have you got particular ideas about how it's going to shape up yet?
2: Well, in some ways, no. The thing that I think has always been true about that last act, though, is that is that it doesn't really work very well. It's quite hard to do. It's very hard to make clear. And something I've always thought about it is that if it's so hard to make clear, it probably shouldn't be clear. It should probably be very confusing. But there's a kind of virtuous confusing, which is good on the stage, and a, 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 a bad confusing, which you don't want. Um, and the line between those things is not always obvious. But I do wonder if what was happening... Because that play starts with the people. It starts with the like the plebeians and the common people of Rome. And then they're really important uh, through to the end of act three, where everything goes crazy and then they disappear. And I wonder if the reason that act five doesn't work very well is that Shakespeare sort of lost track of them. And I have a feeling that might be the problem.
0: And so your solution might be to bring them back and to widen that lens again on the conflict we will really look forward to seeing how that develops. Ewan, right. it's been really fascinating talking to you, hearing how you keep going back actually to ancient stories, not just Achilles in the Iliad but the Bacchae and in fact the story of Julius Caesar mediated through Shakespeare, to think about these contemporary pressing universal issues, looking at war very much from the inside, through behavior, through psychology, and giving your audiences these really powerful experiences, these kind of visceral experiences, which prompt lots of questioning, you know, asking the biggest questions there are. Why do we still kill each other? Why do we fight? So it's really interesting hearing from you. Again, just so that our listeners can look you up, if you want to keep an eye on the shows that Yoon's talked about, the performance of the Back Eye coming up, also. Frankenstein and eventually in the spring, Julius Caesar. Sign up to the mailing list on the Company of Wolves website. It's just companyofwolves.org. And there you can find out much more about Ewan's work and and the work of the wider company too. And as we said, see a clip of the show Achilles.
1: Yes, Ewan. Thank you very much for joining us today on the show. And thank you, our listeners, for joining us again. And we hope that uh, you enjoyed this conversation with Ewan Downey as much as we have. I do keep tuning in to the Visualizing War podcast and next time we'll be turning our attention to representations of war in a very different medium, uh, in the media in fact, because our guest will be Anthony Borden, who is the founder and chief executive of the Institute for War and Peace Reporting. And that institute tries to amplify the voices of people at the front lines of conflict and empower them to drive change and We'll be asking him about their work and about trends in media reporting of conflict more generally. So do join us for what promises to be another really fascinating episode.
0: And if you would like to support our project, please share and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or whatever platform you use so you don't miss an episode. And please do leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps people find the show. If you would like to join the conversation further, you can follow us on social media. Just search for Visualising War or get in touch directly by emailing us at viswar at Our theme music was composed by Jonathan Young. The show was mixed by Zofia Gertin. Thank you for listening.